Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. There's a phrase about how standing on the shoulders of giants will allow us to see farther than the giant can see himself. In some ways, that's exactly what we're seeing now in peaceful protests in our area honoring the life of George Floyd. Not only are these groups honoring George Floyd, with chants of say their names, these demonstrators, many of them young people, are getting a history lesson on years of lives lost at the hands of police. 61 years I've been struggling against police uh, brutality. That's a good question. Will all of this matter at the end of the day? Because it didn't matter much after all these years. I'm hopeful. But these protests all over the globe now seem different. The youth has really done their part in this. and. You know, it's, it's been a tremendous thing to watch. In this edition of 880 In-Depth, the George Floyd protests from the eyes of the young and the old. I'm Tim Sheld from WCBS News Radio 880, and context matters. So I wanted to bring some context of the past into our understanding of the emotions of today around the issue of George Floyd and his death. It's why I asked reporter Peter Haskell to reach out to a seasoned New York civil rights advocate, the Reverend Dr. Herbert Daughtry, who over his 89 years on this earth has seen much from the pulpit of Brooklyn's House of the Lord Church. But I also wanted to hear from a young person documenting the protests. So you'll hear from 20-year-old college journalist Ronald Castaneda. Ronald's been directing the team of journalists from Seton Hall University's radio station WSOU in their coverage of the Floyd demonstrations. And I will tell you, among those young people, it has left an impression. I can say I lived it. I can say I went out and I covered it. I was with the people who were going out and, you know, fighting for what they believed in. But first, a little history. 
Their names have carried across decades of news stories in this city and on this radio station. Eleanor Bumpers, Sean Bell, Eric Garner, Abner Luima, and Amadou Diallo. Listen back to the protests back in 1999 in the days after the Diallo killing. Well, let us well, I'm just trying to walk into police headquarters, but apparently we're being barred from police headquarters here. Uh, they have just walked in. The Reverend Al Sharpton, Congressman Charlie Rangel, and former Mayor David Dinkins have walked inside because they were not being arrested outside. And I as some of us attempted to interview him as he was walking towards one police plaza to get arrested, police physically grabbed myself and a reporter from WNYC Radio and pulled us back from the Reverend Flake as he was giving us a comment. They insisted that we were trying to block the entrances of one police plaza and that we too could very well get arrested. I assure you we were not trying to do that, merely doing our job. I am now ordering you to leave these premises. If you do so Amadou Diallo, a 23-year-old immigrant, was killed by police gunfire in the early morning hours of February 14th in 1999. Members of the NYPD anti-crime unit said he fit the description of a serial rapist they'd been looking for. Diallo was unarmed and shot as he was reaching for his wallet. The four officers charged were acquitted almost a year later by a jury in Albany, New York. The case had been moved because of pretrial publicity. And this was just one in a long line of cases the community felt justice had never been served. The Reverend Herbert Daughtry has seen all of them. He's been around for decades. He spoke to our Peter Haskell. When you saw that video of George Floyd, you must have thought, I've been down this road before. 61 years, 61 years I've been struggling against police uh, brutality and murder, really, of innocent cities, going back uh, to Clifford Glover in 1973, April 28, 1973, was shot in the back by police officers. He was 10 years old. And then there was Claude Reese. He was 14 years old in Brooklyn in 1974. There was Randy Evans. Shot in the head, 1976, November 1976. By the way, I'm not reading this from a paper. Um, that's, this is memory. What's called? I've involved. These are the cases in which I've been involved. Uh, that was 70. What did I leave? Was 76. Every every one of these that the juries uh, pretty much exonerated the officers. Arthur Miller, which is very significant. Arthur Miller was chokehold to death June 14, which is coming up his anniversary, 42 years ago, uh, June 14, 1978. In fact, I talked with the family, which is one of the other things that we've always done. We, uh, in where I've been involved, is we sustain a relationship with the family. This is what Reverend Sharpton is doing. He used to be our youth leader when I was at Executive Vice Chair of Operation Breadbasket, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s organization. And um, so after uh, Arthur Miller, then Louis, he was choked to death, by the way, Arthur Miller. They, they promised to do some changes at that point. And then we had Louis Baez, 1979. He was a Latino brother. Uh, his mother had called for the police. They came and they he was behind some fence that shook him from off the um, fire escape. He was on the ground, 
and they emptied their revolvers. Several of the officers uh, said that he had a knife coming after them. And on and on I could go, uh, not only in New York, uh, here in um, Teaneck, New Jersey, a uh, young lad, um, Pennell, Philip Pennell, 15 years old, shot in the back by an officer, Thomas Shea. And even when we had the video, I mean, the autopsy rather showing that he was shot in the back, the jury still acquitted the officer uh, named Thomas Bay in Jersey City. Young lad, uh, I think he was 13, Michael Anglin. I think he was 13. He was shot in the back by the police. And I could go on and on and on and on um, that, uh, for 61 years. And so now to come to this point in history and, and to see the same thing uh, is going on. We tried to warn, man, I don't know what we didn't do. The one thing that we didn't do was lead a violent uh, march or rally. No one will ever accuse us of me of leading a violent march. We tried everything. We jumped on the subways, tied up the system. We jumped on highways. I don't know how many times I went to jail, civil disobedience. We held rallies, marches, demonstrations. I even went to the UN. We at the, at the UN, the Political Action Committee of the United Nations. We had a 700-page document submitted to the UN, all of that. And here I am, 89 years old. When you look back through the decades, have the police changed? What's different with them, if anything? Very little, as we have seen. Very little has changed with the police. Otherwise, we would not have had these marches and, uh, and, these, and the violence across the country. Uh, the, the police have changed very little, very, very little. In some places, you know, even when you have police chiefs, I've seen the police chiefs, uh, black police uh, chiefs, uh, black mayors have not been able to quell, uh, uh, subdue, uh, uh, substantially reduce police abuse of power, police misconduct, as it relates to especially black and brown and poor people. Uh, what we have seen, like the pushing of the old man in Buffalo, uh, we've seen these things. Um, uh, the, the, the police um, ramming their cars into the demonstrators. We, we, there's, a, there's, a, there's a police culture, that's why we call it systemic. The police reflects the larger society, which is racist. So the police becomes the protectors of the larger society. But there is something different now. Daughtry admitted to our Peter Haskell... The difference, of course, is number one, is that you have you live in a digitized age. We can now see what we knew, what we've been trying to say all these years. You, everybody can see it now. Even while the marches are going on, we can still see the brutality. How many more that we know, don't know about? You know, I was a kid when the Trayvon Martin case happened and everything in Ferguson happened. 
Meet Ronald Castaneda, an incoming senior at Seton Hall University in West Orange, New Jersey. Ronald grew up in nearby Harrison, New Jersey, and as part of his studies, has taken on the job as news director at the school's well-known and well-respected radio station, WSOU. You know, growing up, I thought that was the worst it would get. But then the death of George Floyd happened and, you know, social media went, you know, absolutely crazy with all these facts and, you know, all these new you know, narratives coming out of it. I, I never really expected this to happen. But, you know, when I saw that I did as news director, I knew, you know, I knew that I was watching history. I knew this wasn't going to be, you know, just the Ferguson thing. I knew this was going to be bigger because. Although the death happened in Minneapolis, there were, you know, protests all the way to Chicago and and L.A. early on and right next door to me in Newark. So when I saw that other small cities around me were also putting up protests, that's when I knew this his death is is touching people more than, you know, I ever could have imagined. So I knew you know, as a news director, I had a duty to go out and. um you know, tell the world that and, you know, acknowledge to the world that this is something big and it's, you know, it might be here to stay or we might not see the end of this until there is a change that's gone out. Like any good news director, Ronald makes sure that I know his station's reporting of the Floyd protests these past couple of weeks has been fueled by a team of smart young journalists, students like Veronica Gale and Ronnie Juris, who are out witnessing this history at protests in places like Clifton and Hoboken, ever mindful of its impact. I feel like Trayvon Mont was kind of, at least for me, it was kind of the birth of, you know, my view and understanding that there was a narrative that I never knew about and, you know, the police brutality and the racial injustice. So uh, Rodney King is obviously a name that still gets brought, brought up to this day and, you know, with, with a right. So it, it definitely has been an educational process. Um, I am Hispanic, uh, but I will go out and say that I've never, you know, experienced anything, you know, too crazy in that regard. But to understand that there are people around me who have, and there are people who are, you know, dying at the hands of the police. It is, it is, you know, interesting. It is scary in a way to find out, but the main thing I go out for is I look for the facts and, you know, I look on both sides and it's hard for me. And it's been hard for me to not feel for the black community in, you know, a type of scenario like this. Um, like I said, I've looked at numbers and, you know, I looked at percentages and it, it has been, you know, knowledgeable for me just to go out and do my own research, not just see, you know, what the news is telling me, because, you know, the news can tell me whatever I want. I can read, you know, whatever, you know, they post out on social media and, you know, that'll be their version of trying to teach me their narrative, the way they want me to see the story. Whereas if I went out and I read, you know, what I had to read and, you know, put my own interpretation on everything that was going on. I'd be educating myself on both sides of the matter, which I've always thought would be, you know, best for situations like this. When we talk to the folks that have been on the front lines of um, uh, this kind of activism against racism, against police brutality, um, they say that this moment in history 
uh, may be uh, affected by something that you mentioned, and that is social media. The fact that there is this access to this information and the outrage can get exponentially shared in a way that it's ne- you know, that they never could in the 60s, 70s, uh, and beyond. Social media really can make a difference and is making a difference here, no? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean the way social media has just influenced everything is, is tremendous. I mean, first, first and foremost, the two protests I've been to, the people who organized them were college kids, just like me, they're young. And that's something that I think speaks louder than any narrative is that it's not, you know, social groups that are going out and, you know, starting this, it's not, you know, city hall members, it's not, you know, members of the elderly, it's young kids probably no no older than me are going out and they're making a post on social media and you know it's it catches traction and then before they know it a thousand people are standing in front of them in front of their town city hall getting ready to march down to wherever come back to wherever and then you know that so it's definitely played you know a part in the youth and how the youth is went about uh, covering this and you know that's that's a lot of the narrative uh, I've seen so many posters of kids who are younger than me and you know that's I'm only 20 years old so it's weird for me to see people you know younger than me and uh, going out and promoting what they believe in but you know that that's just been the narrative I've seen so many kids with signs saying this is the last generation that will have to see this hopefully and and, you know, it's such a beautiful remark in that sense. You know, when I go out to these protests, I see so many groups of people. I mean, whites, blacks, Asians, Hispanics, they come together. You know, it's it's the kind of environment where you see all these people and they're chanting George Floyd together. They're chanting Breonna Taylor together. And, you know, there's this energy that comes out of that. And obviously, as a member of the media, I, you know, I try to show unbiased but you know it's kind of hard to to not join in in these chants because i mean there are people crying next to you there are people crying as they're speaking to the crowd and you know people who would usually be nervous you know talking in front of a group of people when they go up in front of a thousand people preaching about something you know they're passionate about all that goes away so Going out and just also talking and educating myself with the people, I think that's an outspoken narrative when it comes to this, that people are also educating themselves during this time so that, you know, like I said, I don't know if this will be the last time we'll see this. I don't know if this is just the first step in, you know, something greater. But the point is I'm educating myself now so that when whatever happens in the future, I can say I lived it. I can say I went out and I covered it. I was with the people who were going out and, you know, fighting for what they believed in. And the best part, I was around people. And it's not just any people. It's, you know, a group of people who are sharing the same ideas and the same wishes. So to see that, you know, happen before my eyes, it's been incredible. And I guess to answer your question in short, it absolutely reinstated, you know, my my wish to be in this industry and to have a you know a long career in this which brings us back to the reverend dr herbert daughtry well that depends that's a good question will all of this matter at the end of the day because 
it didn't matter much after all these years. I'm ho- I'm hopeful. I guess I'm like Bishop Tutu, and during the head days of the apartheid system in South Africa, he used to say, "I'm addicted to hope." So I'm addicted to hope. I hope so. And what I w- would suggest to uh, young people and to the movement today, people who are involved, number one, I would say, uh, keep. Uh, the movement, expand the people movement, expand the people movement. We, we got a movement now from the bottom up. The movement in the street has forced power in the suite to respond. Keep that, uh, uh, keep inviting people, keep expand. Then I would say be involved in politics. Let the energy that we see in the street, particularly young people, get involved in politics. And when I say politics, I mean everything from community planning board to police councils uh, to uh, council people to straight up and down. Become involved in the the, the politics because there is where the policy is made. There is where the policies, the laws are made. And there is where... Uh, you can put in place what can be implemented that, uh, that would make the policies uh, uh, implemented. So I would say get involved, uh, keep the pressure on. We used to say that during South Africa's struggle. Keep the pressure on. Keep the keep moving. Keep marching. Keep demonstrating. Keep advocating. Keep moving. Keep the pressure on. Many thanks to Mark Mabin and his team at WSOU and our friend and colleague Glenn Shuck from 1010 Winds who works with the students there. Thanks to Dr. Herb Daughtry, who I have known for decades. And as always, thanks to Peter Haskell for his weekly contributions to this podcast. His counsel and his hard work have always been invaluable here. WCBS 880 In-Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. The executive producers are the aforementioned Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Schell. Thank you for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and please be safe. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.